today that uh, we are we were able to take the Lord's Supper together to remember the death of Jesus together as a body and uh, and this is probably the largest group we've had been able to do that with at this point we were able to do it a little while ago outside uh, but this was such a privilege to be able to do that um, with the taste of the cracker notwithstanding um, but uh, it, that's not what it's about and what it's about is remembering the death of Jesus and that was a great opportunity uh, and we're looking forward to doing that more often um, before I get into my sermon today, I've been given the go-ahead to give announcements. So this is the, yeah, that's right. This is the day I've been waiting for. My dreams have come true. It's like Christmas. Um, so quickly, because I know we did send them out on email and some of them are in the bulletin, uh, but there are a few things that I do want to mention that you guys are aware of. First of all, uh, if you are an usher... Uh, or, I would even say, and Mike didn't tell me to say this, but I think this goes without saying, or if you'd like to serve as an usher, maybe it's something you haven't been doing, but it's something you think would be a way that you can serve, there's going to be an usher's meeting right after service out in the south wing. That's where you're going to be. So ushers or um, prospective ushers, I guess you could say, please meet in the south wing right after service. Um, there is a member meeting coming up on the 23rd of August. This is an important meeting. We had to cancel our June meeting. Um, so in that, we did, a, we did a vote for the budget online and tried to figure all that stuff out. Um, but we didn't really have a meeting to kind of just give information about where the church has been, where it's going. Uh, so we have a couple important things that we're going to talk about. So I would encourage you, that's going to be after the service um, and we'll live stream it and everything so that if we can't all fit in here, we can all be a part of the meeting, in which we'll give you some information. We're also going to have a vote on uh, using some funds to put in our, our gym floor, uh, which has really become even more vital than it was before because we have a lot of reasons we may use, need to use the gym in the upcoming few months and through this next year, uh, just because it's our biggest space and we want to be able to use it uh, to God's glory. And so we're going to, but we're going to be voting on that. Um, Service opportunities, real quickly, um, because now we are live streaming, we've got video and audio, uh, we need help in the sound booth. Uh, so far, it's been manageable, but especially once we start incorporating wor- worship time, music time back into this, we're going to need help up there, both in video and audio. So if you can help with that, talk to Gary, um, and uh, he'll get you involved. And I would say you don't have to be uh, like a wizard or an expert on uh, everything audio and visual, but uh, if you know your basic way around a computer, I'm sure that you can help out in that area. So please talk to Gary. Also, and we've announced this now a couple times, but we are hoping by the end of this month, that is our hope, I'm not going to give you a guarantee, but by the end of this month, we are hoping that we will be able to restart a children's church program that's going to be socially distant and safe and all of those things. But in order to make that happen, we're going to need multiple volunteers. So whether you've been helping at Junior Church or whether you've never helped before, if you can help in that way, please talk to me. There also will be some sign-ups that will be coming out online as well. Uh, But I would just encourage you to serve one another in this way. If you look around, you'll notice that we really don't have very many families with kids. Um, And part of that is because it's really hard to sit through a service with a bunch of kids at your feet. And we want to be able to serve our families. But in order to do that, we really do need some people to step up to volunteer. And I would say this can be people that have families, that can help other families, but also even for you who may, maybe you don't have kids anymore and that time of your life has gone past, 
but this is an opportunity that you can serve our younger families. I would encourage you to do that as we could use help in those areas. Um, I'm sure I could give more announcements, but I'll stop there. So those are some things that we wanted you to be aware of. Uh, so make sure you mark your calendars for that members meeting, which will give you even more information about all this stuff. We've got a plan going forward into the fall that's going to look different, and we just want to make sure everyone's on the same page. So we will be doing that uh, on the 23rd is, again. Is what, all right. So with all that being said, I'm going to open our time in prayer before we dive into the sermon today. Uh, and we have an opportunity today to continue our summer in the Psalms as we look at Psalm 19. But let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for this morning again, uh, for the time so far that you've given us together. The time that most of us were able to be outside and singing your praises together. Singing your praises about your creation as we were able to stand out and enjoy that creation. God, I thank you for that time. I thank you for the time of communion where we could be united as we remember your death and your goodness and your grace and your love and your mercy. And God, we thank you for that opportunity and that time we've had. And now as we go into your word, as we look at the, the good word that you've put into this book that goes into our hearts, I just pray that you would guide us, direct us, lead us to become more and more like you as we read it, as we talk about it, and as we think about it in our daily lives. So God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your creation. Thank you for your work in our lives. And I pray that today those things would come out clear as we look to Psalm 19. Pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so quickly, uh, if you've been with us or if you haven't been with us, uh, I'm just going to go through a little bit of background. As we look at the summer in the Psalms, we've picked out a bunch of different Psalms. Obviously, we couldn't be exhaustive with the whole book. Uh, it would have taken us a very long time to do that. So we picked, we, we, we chose some and we picked some. And today it's Psalm 19 uh, that I was drawn to as far as thinking about how we've gone through the psalms, if you remember, the psalms are written as a collection of prayer songs to encourage exiles. These were a group of prayer songs to encourage exiles. Now, specifically, this would be the Jewish exiles that were waiting to come back to the land to give them hope for the future. But also, it's for us. If you think about it, in a sense... We are exiles in the sense that we are not living, the world we live in is not really our ultimate home. Uh, and one day we will be in our ultimate home with Jesus and, and the Psalms continually remind us that that day is coming. And that should encourage us. Even in the times that it's convicting, it should also be encouraging. And in that vein, as we've been talking about many of these Psalms, you'll know that one of the themes is blessedness, joy. That joy in following Yahweh is the prevalent theme throughout the book. So many psalms here that point directly to Jesus, and then other ones that maybe indirectly you can see the connection, but they all point us towards Jesus, they all point us towards the blessedness that we will have, the hope that we can have in him, in his second coming, in the way that even, just in him even right now, because he is our refuge and our strength. Uh, through the psalms we've seen that God is our refuge, God is our strength, it's him that we run to, it's him that we call to for help. And so we continue to think that through as we go into Psalm 19. Although Psalm 19 doesn't talk, start with the blessed, uh, the blessedness, 
uh, wording, it does talk about joy when we look at this as a whole, and we're going to continue to look at that today. Before we read our scripture today, uh, start with a little bit of an illustration. The title of today's sermon is House Rules, um, and you might be wondering what that has to do with anything. Um, and uh, let me try to explain it and see if it makes sense. Um, so I love playing games, uh, I, and I'm competitive Sometimes to a fault. Some of you have played games with me and uh, will maybe never play with me again, and I'm sorry for that. Give me a second chance. Um, I love playing games. I, I, I just, I always have, whether it's board game, card game, uh, sporting game, uh, you know, cornhole, whatever. You, you pick the game, I'm probably going to like it unless I'm really, really bad at it, like basketball. Don't play basketball with me. I won't. Uh, but if, but I love playing games, and of course I do like winning, and that's partly why I don't play basketball and things like that. But that's not the point. The point is, I've played a lot of games in my life, and it's become very apparent that you can play the same game in a different way based on where you're playing it. So, I don't know if you've ever had the situation where you have gone to somebody else's house and you start playing a game that you're pretty familiar with and all of a sudden there's this new rule that gets thrown in. You're not really even sure where it came from. Uh, you look in the uh, instruction book, it's probably not there. But it became a rule in this house and it becomes known as house rules. Or maybe you have those for your own self. Like as you play games at home, like we do some things as we play with our kids. Like we'll play Monopoly, but we're not going to play Monopoly the way you're supposed to play Monopoly because we don't want to be there for 10 hours. Uh, but So we'll make house rules to make it quicker and to make it easier for the kids to understand. Uh, so maybe you have a game like that where uh, you have house rules. When people come over, this is how you play this game when you are here. But maybe if you go somewhere else, they might have different house rules. The thing is, you play by the rules of the house that you're in. If you don't, it's kind of offensive. And even if you don't agree with the rule, then if you lose, you can say, well, I didn't really like it because the rule was wrong. Uh, that's, that's what I do, but that's wrong. Uh, but, uh, but the point is, you play by the house rules. Uh, the owner of the house gets to make the rules of the games. Now, I want to take this one step further. Uh, and uh, so the ruler, the, the person who owns the house makes the rules of the game, but there's someone who actually makes the rules of the game even more than that. Um, and that would be as if you were playing with the creator of the game itself. Um, practical example of this. Some of you know Peter McLean. He created a game called Straight Eight right here in Alfred. I'm giving him a shout-out, so I hope I get a royalty. Uh, it, but in straight eight, the first time I played, I went to the terracotta to play, and well, okay, whoop, uh, and uh, and I, I did okay. I don't think I won. Actually, I might have won. I don't. Doesn't matter. That's not the point. Get moving on. So um, the cool thing about that was, is Peter was there, and I learned how to play straight eight from Peter, who was the one who created the game. And so there was no chance that I was going to play that game wrongly. Because not only was it his house, if you will, but it's his game. And we're going to look at today that God, as creator, not only has written the rules, but he also enforces the rules. And it's his right to do that, and we need to play by the rules. We need to not change the rules that he's laid down because he is the creator. What he says goes, basically, is what we're getting to. Uh, there would be no reason for me to go into a straight eight tournament and have a, de- have a debate with Peter McLean about how you're supposed to play straight eight. I will lose every single time because I did not create the game. Uh, you might be able to have a conversation with somebody who has a wrong house rule, but you're not going to be able to do that if they're the one who actually wrote the instructions and created the game. 
And that's the illustration that I want us to kind of think of as we continue to talk about God. We talk about how he is ruling over all and therefore he rules over us. And that's the main idea today. Since God rules over all, we need to accept his rule over us. Since God rules over all, accept his rule over you. It's foolish not to. And it's also not going to lead to joy if we fight against God's house rules. So let's read Psalm 19 one more time, and then we'll break it down as we look at a couple different sections here. Again, Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from his heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep me back from, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. No doubt, not Psalm 19:14 you've heard many times. Uh, but I want to look at the whole psalm. Maybe you've seen pieces of this. A lot of times this psalm actually is broken up into two pieces, two parts. One that talks about creation and one that talks about God's word. Sometimes you don't see it all together, but I think there's a reason that they're in this psalm together. I think they're linked. And I'm going to hopefully show you why I believe they're linked as we think about this idea today that God is the creator and he's ruling over all and therefore we need to submit to his rulership. All right. So, section one, verses one through six. Creation, that's what we're going to look at. The works of God. The works of God in section one are what we're really told about. Uh, and we see these first six verses talk about God's creation, specifically the skies. Like, he wants to point out the skies. Uh, I think that's one of the ways that we most obviously see the creation of God. We see it everywhere we look. But one of the things that I've loved doing since I was a young child is looking up at the open sky when there's stars filling the whole sky. And, and God's going to talk about uh, how he is the creator. David's going to talk about how he is the creator of all the skies and the sun and their paths and everything that happens and like, even I'm looking forward to this week, there's supposed to be a meteor shower on Tuesday and Wednesday. I'm hoping we have a clear night so that we can look at the handiwork of God in the heavens. And that's what David is talking about. He's looked up to the heavens and he sees the work of God there. And so in this first section, we see that creation, specifically the skies here, are constantly revealing the glory of God. They are constantly revealing the glory of God. In verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, it pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So there's a couple things we see here. Uh, creation 
yes, it shows God's glory, but this is not just a one-time thing. It's not like one time you look at creation and think, oh, God's glorious. Now, actually, if you look at what this is saying, the way the verbs are written and the way the words are written, this is saying the heavens are daily declaring the glory of God and the sky above is daily proclaiming his handiwork. And then it goes on day to day and night to night. It's a cycle every single day and every single night. We can see the handiwork of God. And David is remembering this. And as we think about that, we understand that God is in control of everything. He's created all things. He is overseeing all things. There is nothing that is out of his hand. And so we see through creation that this is a daily cyclical occurrence. And it says, what is, then it shows the glory of God. Now the word glory talks about weight or importance. It's showing the great weightiness of God, the great importance of God, how he is greater and better than anything and anyone. That's what we can see through his creation. It goes a little further than that. Not only do we see the glory and the weightiness and the importance of God through creation, but we see that through God's works, we are told about who he is. There is no speech, nor there are words, in in verse 3, whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. These two verses almost seem like they're not, they're contradicting each other. First it says there is no speech, and then it says their words go to the end of the world. Well, what is the point of this? Remember, the Psalms are poems, and David is really using imagery and wording here to get us to understand that even though uh, the world, the creation doesn't audibly speak. It's not like we go out and look at the sky and then all of a sudden the stars line up into a a saying for us, like gives us God's word in the stars. It's not like it actually literally speaks to us. So they don't have words, but yet they do have words. In other words, they are speaking to us even if it's not audibly. And we use words. We use thoughts like that. Like sometimes we can know what somebody is thinking or saying without even saying a word. Like especially maybe you're married and you're like, uh, you're in a situation and like your wife or your husband will reach over and just squeeze your knee. Like that, they don't have to say anything. It's just they're telling you stop. Usually that's what it is for me. My wife's like stop talking so much or whatever it might be. Like, but there, or, or maybe you're talking to somebody and you're across the room and maybe for better or for worse, you can see the body language, like a rolling of the eyes or just kind of a look that kind of communicates what it needs to communicate. We, we get that. And if we think about creation, it's kind of the same way. Yes, it doesn't talk to us audibly, but it shows us the glory of God and therefore speaks to us about who he is. We can learn a lot about who God is based on what we see in creation. Now, unfortunately, people who don't know the, the Lord, who don't know Jesus, don't look at that in the same way. And that is sad. But for us, we can look at creation and know that it is speaking. It is telling us who God is. This knowledge, by the way, the knowledge of God that can be seen in creation, you can look at creation and it speaks of the fact that God is there and he exists and he is holding all things together. It speaks to us if we allow it to. And this is for the whole world. Keep in mind that everybody in all the world sees the same creation. Now, maybe not on the earth, right? So maybe some people live in a desert, some people live in a jungle, some people live in a city and they might see different things as they look around them. But when they look up, The stars, the sun, the moon, it's seen by all the earth. Don't miss that piece. Because God is revealing himself not just to us here in our context, but God reveals himself to the whole world. Romans chapter 1 speaks of this. 
You guys will know these verses, but I want to just remind us of this. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And then I'm going to skip over to Romans 10, 17 and 18. But first, Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely the eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, God's glory and who he is is shown through creation, and to suppress that is... uh, it is not an excuse for not knowing God. Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 17 and 18. So if faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now if you notice, that is actually a direct quote back to the psalm that we're in right now. So we can't have the sermon without looking at that verse. And Paul is using this psalm to show the fact that they have, that the whole world has heard in a very real sense about who God is. Now they don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and how they can submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus and, and live a Christian life. But they have at least been revealed to the concept that there is a God that has created and a God that should be sought. And that is where we go in Psalm 19. It's this, that's quoted there for that reason. Paul is using that to say everyone has heard because everyone has seen. And so God's works are everywhere and they reveal his glory and they show who he is. God is, then we see God is the one who rules over the sun. Specifically the sun starts to be talked about. God is the one who rules over the sun and everything under it is the understanding that we have. It says, uh, their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words the end of the world. Okay, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from his heat. Now before some of you scientists here say, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense, because it's talking about how the sun moves, and we know that that's not really how it works, that the earth is what's moving, and it just appears that the sun is moving. Again, remember, this is David writing from a man's perspective, and he's writing poetry. We can't get bogged down by thinking, well, David was wrong, therefore the Bible isn't true. Because what he should have said is that the earth moves, and then we see the sun in, in retrospect of that. That's not the point here. Just like any good poem, it's just drawing a picture for us. And it's from the perspective that we have. Our perspective says the sun moves, even though we know that it's actually the earth moving. But our perspective shows that the sun is moving. And that's what David is talking about here. But the whole point here isn't to talk about whether it's moving or not moving. The whole point here is that God is the one that's moving it. Or God is the one that is orchestrating how the skies work. The sun follows God. That's kind of the interesting thing here. It says, he has set a tent for the sun. So he's saying, God has set the heavens for the sun The sun is not anything in and of itself. God has been the one to provide it, and God is the one who controls it. He is the one who allows it to exist and rules over its path. So this is partly because it's reminding us of God's creation, but also this is kind of a a direct uh, hit against the other nations around Israel that would be believing in false deities, because most nations throughout history, if they have false gods, the sun is usually one of them. Because it's the most powerful thing you can see and feel, a lot of times the sun became either a god or somehow connected to false worship. 
And so here, David is saying, look, no, Yahweh, God, God, he's the one. He's the one that, that rules the sun. And that's interesting there as well. Finally, at the end of this, it talks about how there is nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. Again, this idea of the completeness of God's creation. That there is nothing hidden from under the sun. Everyone sees the sun, everyone feels the sun, everyone knows the sun. And therefore, as the sun reveals everything... God is also going to reveal everything, and that's what we're going to look at in just a moment as we look at his word and as we look at how he works in our life. So the Son reveals all things, and so does God, and there is nothing hidden from him. There is nothing hidden from the Son. God is the one ruling over the Son and everything that it shines on. God is the ruler. Now, we could stop there and have a really, really just uplifting thing. God is creator. God is ruler. But then David goes into a second section that at first might seem like it doesn't really coincide with the first, but it really does. Because now he goes from talking about the works of God to talking about the word of Yahweh. From the works of God to the word of Yahweh. That these do go together. So, as creator, all the words that God gives us are all together perfect. So here's the thing, going back to my illustration, if Peter created straight eight, it goes to follow then that what he says about the game is what needs to be followed. The creator of the game decides how the game is played, and he tells you how the game is played. God says, I am the creator, I've created all of this, there is nothing that is hidden from me, and therefore, what I say matters. David says, what God says is supreme, Because he is the supreme creator and therefore we need to listen to him. And so it makes sense that he moves from creation to God's word. It shows the authority through creation and now authority through what he says. The creator has the right and the ability and the truthfulness to say anything and everything he wants to say. And we need to listen to those words. So as creator, all the words that God gives us are altogether perfect. That's the point. If he created everything good, if he created everything right, then therefore what he says is the standard. It is perfect. No one can add to it. No one can take away from it because he's the creator. So we got to get that understanding to start with. So through this section, I'm going to read the whole section and then we're going to just hit a few pieces here. Um, It says here, uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they are gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter than they are than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. That's the section we're going to look at, but we're going to kind of do an overview of it. So I want you to have that in your mind. So there are several ways that God, that David refers to God's law, God's word. Okay, there's several ways that he refers to God's word. He talks about the law or the Torah. This is talking about in the instruction, like it's an instruction for living. That's kind of what the idea of this Torah is. It's it's kind of all-encompassing, but it's instruction. He talks about the testimony of the Lord, uh, tablets of stone, like back to the Ten Commandments. But it's this safeguard idea, like. God not only gives us instructions, but he gives us this safeguard. He gives us guardrails. That's what his uh, testimony is about. His precepts. 
authoritative words. Like, it's the authority that goes behind his words. That's what we look at at precepts. The commandment. Uh, it says the commandment of the Lord. It's the whole body of what God expects of us. Not one specific commandment necessarily. If we were going to boil it down to one, it would be love God, love others. But the whole point is everything that God commands, it's telling us to do something. And that is good. It talks about the fear of the Lord. This is the result of listening to God's word. If we really listen to what God says, we will fear and respect him completely. It talks about the rulings of the Lord. This is the applications of truth in our lives. It's not just the general instruction or the general law, but this is how we apply those things to our lives. And God even tells us those things. Now, I had a book that I was going to read a quote from, but I didn't bring it up with me, so I'm just going to go ahead and sum it up. Uh, but uh, there was a quote in this book that I was reading, and I can't even remember the title of it. It's by uh, Dale Ralph Davis. Look it up. It's a Psalms book. So, uh, But in this book, uh, he kind of goes through a bunch of these Psalms, and what he basically says is all of these words aren't meant for us just to take piecemeal and just be like, okay, so let's talk about specifically what the law is, what the precepts are, what the testimony is, and break them all apart and dive in and just pick them apart. We could do that, and there'd be some good things that could come from that. I'm not saying there wouldn't be. But the point that David is making is that all of God's word, it's about the fact that he's all-encompassing, all together. There is nothing that God has said that does not, is not included in what he is saying. All of these things are perfect. All of these things are right. All of these things make give wisdom. All of these things are doing all of this. And therefore, it's all of God's word. We can't just pick and choose part of it. Well, this book is inspired and worthy of us reading, and this book isn't. If it's God's word, it's God's word, no matter what type of God's word it is. That's the point. That David is saying that everything that God says is what we need to listen to. Now, in this, this is an important thing that we need to notice as well. There is a change that has happened from the verse six, first six verses now to these next. Uh, now, we're in the first six verses, we are told about God. In Hebrew, it's just El. Just the kind of generic word for God. I don't want to say generic, but it's just, it's God. Like, there's nothing special about that name other than it's talking about God. And, and he says, God is the creator but now he changes things, starting in verse 7. Did you notice that? He goes from calling God God to calling him the Lord or Yahweh. Now, what does this matter? It's interesting that this transition happens because what, what I believe David is getting across, what the Holy Spirit is getting across to us through David's writing, is that the creator God, who is overall, is also a personal God that has come down to us. Yahweh, the great I Am, the covenant-keeping God. The creator God is a personal God. We can't miss the transition from the generic term God to now the specific name of God that is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who shows love and mercy and for thousands, as we're told in Scripture. And this is the God that now David talks to about. This is God's word. This is the Lord's word. This is Yahweh's word. The one who's made a covenant, the one who has come to us to be personal, to be connected with us, is the one that we listen to. You see, there are a lot of people that believe that might be a God that created, but he's not a God that really cares about what's going on now. That is false. The same God who created the world is the one who comes close. This, as I said, this is God's personal name that he gave to Moses. It shows the relationship that he has with his people. 
He isn't just a distant creator, but a God who draws near to us. That is another piece that we see in this next section. So as we talk about the word, we're also talking about where that word is coming from. And it's important that we understand that this is where we're at, that the God of creation has come close to us. He wants a relationship with us. How amazing is that? When you look up at the stars, it's easy to think, wow, this is really pretty. But think about the fact that as you look at the stars and you say, God created all of this, and yet he cares for me. And other psalms talk about that specifically. He cares for us and loves us despite the fact that he is the ultimate creator. That should give us great joy and great hope. That moves us to the next point. As we understand that all of God's word is perfect, and we understand that God is a personal God who draws near Then we see what Yahweh says is joyful and pleasing. If we follow the word of God, if we follow the word of Yahweh, it is joyful, it is pleasing. These are some things that he says in this passage. I'm just going to hit them quickly. He says that God's word revives the soul. This is sustenance. It's like eating food when you're starving. So it revives our soul. It gives us wisdom. It rejoices the heart. Joy that can't be taken away, that comes deep from within within us. Not fleeting happiness, but inner joy that will not leave because it's through him. God's word lights up our eyes. It says here, it enlightens your eyes. I want to park here for a minute. This is a really cool statement. You think about enlightens the eyes. You might not think about what it really looks like. What does God's word do? Well, it lights up our eyes. You know, maybe you've been in a, a time in your life where you've saw something that is so amazing that you're just like, Wow, you don't get this idea, those huge eyes, like you're just in amazement of what you see. I watched some videos today because I was thinking about showing them today, but it just didn't work because I didn't know how videos would work and because uh, some people use some uh, words that would not be appropriate for church. So I'm not recommending this totally. But go to YouTube and look up colorblind people who see color for the first time. They came out with glasses a little while ago that somehow with technology, I don't even know how it all works, and I believe there was some even work done in Alfred on these glasses, I'm not sure, but these glasses were made so that colorblind people could put them on and see color. And I watched some of these videos, and I would encourage you to do that, and uh, some of them use God's name in vain, that's why I didn't want to show them in church, let's put it that way. Uh, so, but when people put on these glasses, the look on their face almost makes you just want to cry, because it is amazing. They put on the glasses and some of them just start looking around in complete bewilderment. Some of them start weeping right away. Some of them just keep putting the, taking them off and putting them back on and just in amazement of what they can see. Now, I don't know if any of you are colorblind and if you could think, I mean, so get those glasses if you are because I want to have a video of you uh, praising God because that's the point. Like, wouldn't it be great if after those, after those glasses were put on, instead of just saying, oh, these glasses are great, that people would say, God, you are so great. Thank you for this gift. But that's the idea of enlightening the eyes. You can see something you've never been able to see before and that should inspire just great awe. It should inspire great excitement and joy. Just like those people who are seeing color for the first time, listening to God's word and seeing what he says can change everything. The other things that we're told about God's word is it's true and righteous. It's true, it's not false, it's righteous, it's not evil. It's desirable like gold or honey. Like, we should desire to listen to God just as much as we would desire, actually more than we should desire any type of riches. We should listen to God's word and desire it more than any type of food, that even the most sweet food we can think of. Desire his word. 
Another thing we're told in this passage is that God's word is a warning to us. Now, before you think, oh, that's kind of negative. All these others have been positive. Why would you put warning here? Think about a warning. It's a good thing. If you're coming up to a cliff and you see a sign that says, warning, cliff ahead, you won't walk off of it. Hopefully. If you, uh, if you read. Uh, but a warning is good for you. A warning is good. When I tell my kids not to play with the fire when we have a bonfire at home, I'm not being mean. I'm being loving. It's good for them not to go into the fire. So this is what we see as we think about warning. But then it, David ends this by saying in verse 11, not only is he warned through his word, but it is a great reward. A great reward. What God has said is a reward if we follow it and listen to it. Because if we're going to want to experience true blessedness and joy, we will listen to the Creator's word because he has a right to say what he has to say. And we need to listen to it and do something with it. Which gets us to our next point. Section 3, after we've looked at the works of God, the word of Yahweh, now it's the way of God's servant. The works, the word, and the way. The way of God's servant. And we see right away, here starting in verse 11, David humbles himself before God in prayer. And how do we know he humbles himself? Well, what does he call himself? Verse 11, moreover, by them is your... Catch it? What does he say? Servant. Is your servant warned? Interesting here. David's a king, right? So, um, this is a humble phrase. Uh, Moses was called the servant of the Lord, and he's also called the man who had the most humility. We see humility here as David humbles himself and refers to himself as servant, not only in verse 11, but also later on in verse 13. He understands that he is subservient to God, to Yahweh, that he needs to submit to Yahweh, even though he might be powerful in this world. It's nothing compared to the power that God has, the creator of the world, and the one who has given his perfect word. And so as we think about how to respond to God's creation and respond to God's word, it starts with humility and saying, I didn't create any of this, so I can't add to God's word or take away from it. I need to listen to him because I'm just his servant. And that's what David is saying here, to serve, to be subservient, to submit to God. And in this, he also, in the point of this, In verse 12 and in verse 13, which we'll talk about this quite in depth, he talks about that he needs the help of God. Because notice here he says, Declare me innocent from hidden faults as he talks to God. Keep keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. He's asking God for help. Now, if you were here last week or watched the stream online, you'll know that Pastor Justin talked about this idea of calling out to God for help because he's the only place to go. And that's what David is doing, running to God for help. If he's the creator and he's the one that makes all his words are perfect, then who else would we run to? We need to run to Yahweh, to run to the Lord, to run to him and listen and ask for help. So that's where we see David's humility. The next reaction, the next way that David takes is David asks for the removal of sin. He asks for the removal of sin. Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So, 
First, David talks about the removal of hidden sin that he can't see. Who can discern his errors? This is a rhetorical question. He's saying no one can really discern his hidden errors. I would propose to all of you that there is probably something in your life that you don't even know is there that is something that is a bit of rebellion against God. Uh, and I would encourage you to think about that and to uh, ponder on that. Ask others to help you in that. But even with doing all of that, there are still going to be things that we are blind to. We all have blind spots. And so what David is saying is, who can discern his errors? Who can see his own blind spots? And the idea is nobody except God. If God is the creator and the one who writes the perfect word, then he is also the one that sees everything and knows everything. Remember, just like the sun, there is nothing hidden from its heat. There is nothing hidden from God. And so David says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. So, David uh, seeks acquittal. All right, so uh, we're going to look at this in a little bit more detail. But as we think about hidden sin, uh, going back to our illustration, maybe you've played a game before, and I, there's many games that this has happened to me before, but maybe you've played a game where you've played it one way for years. Right? You've played it one way for years, and then finally somebody comes to your house, and you're playing by your house rules, and they say, wait a minute, why do you play this way? And you say, this is how I've always played. And then they say, well, here's the instruction manual. Right here is the real rule. And you all of a sudden realize, I've been playing this game wrong for the last 10 years. This happened in youth group not too long ago. We had set up a uh, four-square court. And forever, I've always played in four-square that every line in the square is out. If you hit a line, it's out, and therefore you, it, you, you would be out. The true, as you look at the you know, regulation rules for Foursquare, whatever, whoever made those up, I don't know, but the point is you look at the regulation rules and it says, okay, the lines that are on the inside of the square are out, but if you hit the line that's on the outside of the square, they're in. That transformed Foursquare for me and for our youth group because now we actually had a rule that we knew was true and we enforced it. There's been other games where I've done the same thing. Maybe you've played foosball. Do you know that it is not allowed in foosball for you to spin the players? That is against the rules. If you do that, you're a rule breaker and you need to stop. You're supposed to use, you're supposed to use your wrist and just do quick flicks. You're not supposed to spin the thing. So if I play foosball with you and you do that, I'm going to tell you you're playing by the wrong rules. But again, I played like that forever until I was finally told about what the real rules were. Uh, there's been other games in my life that these type of things have happened. And when we figure that out, we're like, wow, I can't believe I've been doing this wrong all the time. And we change our ways. Going back to these hidden errors, we need the instruction manual from the one who made it. It would be like if I went to the terracotta and was playing straight eight wrongly, and even if I'd been playing that way for years, and Peter came over and said, look, this is not the way you're supposed to play, I'd be like, oh, I was wrong all this time. I'm going to change. And that's the point. God is saying, uh, or David is saying, I have hidden faults and I need you to declare me innocent. I need you to take them and change me. Notice here, and this is important, that David seeks acquittal, uh, acquittal, uh, innocence, and to be blameless. He wants integrity. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So integrity is something in which we are pure in the sight of God. He wants this, but he understands that this is only something that can come from God. Notice here the words he uses. He says to God, he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. And then in verse 15, or 13, he says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. 
So here's the thing. Not only is David talking about the hidden sin that he doesn't know, but also the sin that he voluntarily might commit. Presumptuous sins. Uh, arrogant sins is really what the word is talking about here. Sins in which you just say, God, I'm not going to follow you. And, and what does David say, though? He says, I need you to declare me innocent, and I need you to keep me from sinning. See, so many times we think we have the, our own strength is going to be able to discern our faults and change ourselves. We think that we have the power within ourselves to just change what we need to change. David says, David doesn't say, I want to be innocent from hidden faults. Help me to see it so that I can change. He doesn't say, um, uh, that, uh, make it so that our God, I want to stay away from presumptuous sins. He says, keep me back from it. Declare me innocent. This is what God does. The truth of the matter is, and I'm not going to read all these verses, but I would encourage you to go to Romans chapter 5 at some point and read Romans 5. Uh, And Romans 5 talks about the fact that we are declared righteous by God through the death of Jesus. This is what we call justification. Justification says that even though we're guilty, God declares us innocent because of the death of Jesus on the cross. And because Jesus died and rose again and, and the gospel happened then we can be justified, we can be made righteous, we can be declared innocent. That's what David wanted, that's what David asked for, but we have it, we've seen it. Jesus did it for us. He has justified us if we know him, if we come to him in faith and turn from our our sinful, wicked ways and just say, Lord, we need you, I need your help, please take my life. I know you died and you rose again, and I need to accept that and to follow you. That is the gospel, that is the response to the gospel that we need to have. That the king of the world that has been proclaimed from the very beginning of scripture is Jesus. He died and rose again and is waiting to have you join him in heaven again if you will just come to him in faith and repentance. Then we are justified. We are declared innocent. Only God can do that. You can't do enough good works. You can't give enough money. You can't be nice enough to people. You can't say enough prayers to make yourself innocent. We are all guilty. We are all sinners. And we need the innocence that only God can give us through Jesus Christ. So we see in Psalms that it's pointing forward to what Jesus is going to do. And then David goes on and talks about, keep me back from this presumptuous sin. So then we lean into our justification. We lean into the fact that God has made, has declared us innocent. And we ask God to help also with our sanctification. That's another big word that we use a lot of times. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 tells us that it is the work of God that sanctifies us. That we trust him to sanctify us. And so therefore, again, David understands that, God, I need you to keep me from these sins. I can't do it on my own. I think we fall into such a huge trap when all of us think, and I've been there and done that, where I think I can be strong enough, smart enough, wise enough, clever enough to stay away from sin or to not sin. We need to lean into God and say, please, God, help me. Keep me from sinning against you. Keep me from rebellion. Keep me from trusting in, or keep me from trusting in anything other than you. Keep me, Lord. I need you to keep me. I need you to help me. Is that our heart when we're facing a sin? A lot of times we actually run away from God because we feel like God doesn't want to deal with me right now because I'm sinning. I've been there. Maybe you have. I'm not going to talk to God about this right now because I'm in sin and I don't really know if he wants to listen. I'm going to try to fix it. Then I'll talk to God. That is 
just plain dumb. Don't do it. Like, come to God and ask him for help because you're not going to defeat your sin on your own. You can't. Only through Jesus, only through God, only through his strength can you be kept from presumptuous sin. And so you can be kept from being under the slavery of sin. If you've ever been caught in a sin, whether a hidden sin or a sin that you is out in the open for you to know and others, you know that it can just chain you and hold you down. And that's the opposite of joy. We want to have joy through God's word. We're going to listen and we're going to repent and we're going to follow his words and ask for him to help us not to sin so that we can have ultimate joy. We need his help. And so ask him for it. Even when you're in the midst of it and you feel like God is the last person that you want to talk to or that wants to hear from you, come to him and ask him for help. As, you're, as his children, he wants to help. Just ask him. And we see here at the end, he says, uh, he says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David says, God, keep me from being caught in rebellion. Keep me from being a rebel. Help me to submit to you. Rebellion is the essence of transgression and sin. And he says, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like that. Is that our heart as well? I want to stop here for a moment and say one little thing. I know I'm running short on time. What David does here, notice he doesn't ask God about other people's sins. He doesn't say, God, declare other people innocent from their hidden faults. He doesn't say, you know, deal with this person who's doing this presumptuous sin. Or deal with this person who has this hidden sin. David is humble enough, talking about his humility, to say, what is it that's in me that needs help? I think a lot of us right now are so easy to think that we're not the ones that are the problem. Whether you can, whatever the situation is, that everyone else is the one that's the problem. That's what our society is like, by the way. Look around. Watch social media for five minutes. Don't go any longer because it'll depress you. But what you see is that everyone is blaming everyone else for all the problems in the world. Nobody is ever stepping back and saying, what is it that, is, what is it that I can do? What is it that's wrong with me? What, is it that the, what am I doing? And as Christians, we need to ask, what is it that is sin in me? Before I look at the sin in others, which we need to do, we need to keep each other accountable. But before I look at that sin, God, would you just declare me innocent from all the things that are hidden to me? Would you keep me back from sinning? So our first response to God's word and his creation is not to look at other people and say, you're a bad person, you need to change. Our first response is, God, what is it about me that needs to change? What can you change in me before we worry about others? So I'd be very careful with that. Make sure there's no rebellion in you before you address the rebellion in others. Finally, David Uh, The way of God's servant, he humbled himself, he asked for the removal of sin, and then he desires true worship in light of God's character. He says that his words, he wants his words to be acceptable. The word be acceptable is about worship. It's about acts of worship that reflect God well. The same words are used in Romans 12, 1 and 2 for us. You know, the acceptable act of worship is to sacrifice ourselves for Jesus. And so as we think about this idea of being acceptable, it's acts of worship. And he says, I want my words to be acceptable. Not only the words he says to God, but also the words he says about God. It's all of his words. We worship God with our mouths. That is truth. 
Some people may say, I can worship in my heart without worshiping with my mouth, but if it's in your heart, it'll come out of your mouth. That is just the truth of Scripture. So you will worship God in light of His creation, in light of His Word, in love, light of His forgiveness and His justification and His sanctification in our lives, then we will worship Him with our words, what we say to those around us, what we say to God, we will worship Him. Then David talks about his meditations. These are the inward thoughts and intentions of our hearts. They need to be worshipful. So, whereas I just said we need to worship with our words, it's very easy to worship with words while we really don't have any real worship within us. And they gotta go together. That, that we are worshiping God from within us that bubbles out through our mouths and that we are using our words and our meditations to worship God. And then David, where do we even get this? Well, David desires true worship in light of God's character. So he talks about what he wants to be acceptable, his words, his meditations, and then he goes and says, God, O oh Lord, Yahweh, you are my rock and my redeemer. He remembers who God is, and that should move us all to worship, just as it moved David to worship. It moved David to worship as he remembered that God is the steady one, the one who has redeemed him, the one that has set him free, the one that has given him justification and sanctification, and the one who has created the world, the one who has given the perfect word, that God, that Yahweh, at this point, right now, is his rock and his redeemer, and therefore he will worship him freely. We need to worship him. Here at church, out on the streets, in our homes, let's worship God. With that, and I mentioned it, but I want to read it. Romans chapter 12, as we think about how this applies to us today in a sense. This is written by David in a psalm, but it's also written by Paul. If we look at Romans 12, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by, the t- by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The acceptable word is there again. So how do we worship God in light of his creation, in light of his word, in light of the work that he's given in our lives to humble us and to remove our sin? Well, it's right here that we present our, sa- our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's our whole life, staying away from the world and living for God. It is trusting him completely and sacrificing all our selfish and rebellious desires and following Jesus. That is what we are called to do. That is how we worship God in light of who he is. And so it's not just for David. It's not just for Israel. It's for all of us. So a couple questions to ask today before we leave. First of all, do you know the creator in a personal way? Do you know the creator God in a personal way? Has he declared you innocent? In other words, have you come to know Jesus as your savior? Have you accepted his sacrifice on your behalf? Have you believed in the fact that the creator God came down as Jesus to live a perfect life, to then die on the cross, to rise again, to wait to come back one day again, and you are putting your yourself, your whole life in his hands? And accepting him through faith and believing in all that he's done and all who he is. Repenting of trusting yourself and instead trusting Jesus. You need to do that. Know the creator in a personal way. Be declared innocent. We are all guilty. Without his declaration of innocence, we will never be innocent. We need him. And his death, his resurrection has bought that for us if we will accept it in faith. 
Second question is, do you listen to and appreciate the word of God? Do you really listen to the word of God? Do you read the word of God? Do you discuss the word of God with others? Do you appreciate God's word? Or is it just a book that sits on your shelf that you might get out once a week? You just think it's just a book. There are some people in this world that don't have that book. They would give anything to even have half of what you have in the books that we have, the Bibles we have. So do we really appreciate the word of God that it's perfect and it's giving us joy? Do you find joy in the word of God? Or when you sit down and read the word of God, does it make you upset, angry, sad, whatever you want to say? Sometimes that has to happen because you need to repent of something. But the point of God's word is to point us to Jesus and to give us hope. So does it do that for you? Or do you listen and appreciate the word of God? And finally, are you submitting to the rule of God through humility and worship? God is the creator. God has given his words that are perfect. And our response needs to be one of humility, to run to him for help, to worship him above all else, because he is the perfect creator who gives us the perfect word, who has justified and redeemed he is our rock and our redeemer, and so we worship him in, in humility. Would we do that as we go from here? Not just do it here at church, but move on through our lives and worship him through humility. With all that being said, let us pray as we close our time together. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had. Thank you for your word. Thank you. That is perfect. God, that it can give such joy. Help us to find joy even in what we looked at today. To know that you have redeemed us and you are the one who justifies and sanctifies. You are the one who gives us your perfect word and you are the God who created all that we see. Give us joy. Give us hope. Give us peace. Help us to remember that you are our rock and redeemer each and every day that we walk through this world. And I pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.